Both the House and Senate will return from their President's Day recess today. The House will be in session through tomorrow, but the Senate will stay in session until Thursday. The House was in recess last week. This week on the House floor, when they return today, they've got the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, they'll try to take up seven bills under suspension of the rules. Tomorrow, the House will consider another bill under suspension of the rules, and then they'll consider two other bills, H.R. 4296, to place requirements on operational risk capital requirements for banking organizations established by an appropriate federal banking agency. That's a mouthful. And H.R. 1865, the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act of 2017. Then the House will go home so the late Reverend Billy Graham can lie in honor in the Capitol Rotunda on Wednesday and Thursday. Last week on the Senate floor, no action. They were in recess last week. This week, they'll return today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. That'll be a Senate vote on the motion to invoke cloture on the motion on the nomination of Elizabeth Branch to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the 11th Circuit. Then the Senate will vote on a series of nominations through to the week. Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget, A. Marvin Quattlebaum to be U.S. District Judge for the District of South Carolina. Karen Gren Scholar to be U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Texas, Tillman Eugene Self III to be U.S. District Judge for the Middle District of Georgia, and Terry Doty to be U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Louisiana. I want to talk to you for a moment about employee rights. In the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, written by Thomas Jefferson in 1777, Jefferson said, quote, to compel a man to furnish contributions of funds for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical, end quote. That's what labor unions do every day under current law. The good news is there are legal challenges underway and legislative efforts, too, that would end the practice of forcing people to subsidize political activity they oppose. Today, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in the case of Janus versus AFSCME. AFSCME, A-F-C-M-E, I'm sorry, A-F-S-C-M-E, that's the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, and it's one of the biggest public sector unions around. Mark Janus is an Illinois child support specialist who's suing the union over fees collected from non-members to cover their share of collective bargaining costs which typically run around 80% as much as union dues in total. Janus argues that the payments he is compelled to make are a violation of his First Amendment rights. The case is very similar to Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association, which was heard by the Supreme Court in 2016. In that case, the Supreme Court deadlocked at four to four after the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. The arrival of Justice Neil Gorsuch to replace Scalia could tip the balance to five to four against the prospect of forced payment of union collective bargaining fees for non-members. If that happens, political activity by the public sector unions could be severely damaged. Meanwhile, there's also activity on the legislative front. Supporters of the right to work have introduced into the House and Senate H.R. 2723 and S. 1774, the Employee Rights Act. The bill has eight core provisions. It would mandate secret ballot elections to determine union representation create union recertification elections when at least half of the originally unionized employees have left their workplace, require opt-in instead of opt-out systems for voluntary contributions to support union political operations, known as paycheck protection, change the win bar for a union certification election so the electoral universe is all the affected employees rather than just those who vote in the election, 
and require that a union win a majority vote of the entire electoral universe rather than just a majority of those who vote. Allow employees not to provide personal information to union organizers. Provide more protections from union coercion blocking decertification of an already existing union. Require secret ballots for strike votes, eliminating the option to vote at union meetings following discussions where pressure is most easily brought to bear and criminalize union threats and violence. The bill has 151 co-sponsors in the House and 29 co-sponsors in the Senate. Two of its co-sponsors in the Senate are the majority leader and the majority whip. So stay tuned. Now to the Nunez memo. On Saturday, after negotiations with the White House and an agreement over necessary redactions, the House Intelligence Committee released the Democrats' counter-memo, responding to the Nunez memo. You'll find a link to the Democratic memo in the suggested reading this week. The Democrats' memo fails to dispute the two central findings in the Nunez memo, to wit that the Department of Justice failed in its FISA warrant application to reveal that the Steele dossier was political opposition research funded by the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee, and that the dossier was used to apply for the FISA warrant. Nor does the Democrats' memo dispute that then-FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe testified before the House Intelligence Committee in December that the FBI would not have applied for the FISA warrant without the Steele dossier. In addition, the Democrats' memo fails to dispute that FBI and DOJ officials knew that Christopher Steele was adamantly opposed to the election of Donald Trump, and therefore whatever intelligence he had gathered and included in his dossier should have been viewed through that biased prism. I want to give you just one example. The Nunez memo charged that the FBI and DOJ officials who applied for the FISA warrant against former Trump campaign foreign policy advisor Carter Page never told the court that the Clinton campaign and the DNC had paid for Steele's work. The Democrats' memo says this is not so. But the Democrats' memo cites the actual FISA warrant application as follows, saying, quote, DOJ discloses that Steele, quote, was approached by an unidentified U.S. I'm sorry, was approached by an identified U.S. person who indicated to source number one, that's Steele, that a U.S.-based law firm had hired the identified U.S. person to conduct research regarding candidate number one's ties to Russia. The identified U.S. person and source number one have a long-standing business relationship. The identified U.S. person never advised source number one as to the motivation behind the research into candidate number one's ties to Russia. The FBI speculates that the identified U.S. person was likely looking for information that could be used to discredit candidate number one's campaign, end quote. To clarify, the identified U.S. person clearly is Glenn Simpson, who runs Fusion GPS, the opposition research firm. Source number one is Christopher Steele. Candidate number one is Donald Trump. You know what I did not see in that paragraph? I did not see the words the Clinton campaign or the Democratic National Committee. That is, nowhere does the application say that the Steele dossier was paid for by the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee. Now to the Obamacare front. Last Tuesday morning, the Department of Health and Human Services proposed new rules regarding the sale of short-term, limited-duration health insurance. On its way out the door in October 2016, the Obama administration tried to drive even more unwilling consumers into the Obamacare exchanges by enacting a new rule shortening the length of time a short-term limited duration policy could be in effect, from 12 months down to three months. 
Trump's proposed new rule would reverse that Obama-era rule and allow such plans to be sold for a duration of up to 12 months. Why are these plans so attractive? Because they allow consumers to get the coverage they want, not the coverage Obamacare dictates through its onerous regulations. Not surprisingly, these plans are much less expensive than Obamacare-mandated plans. Just how much less expensive are they? According to HHS, quote, in the fourth quarter of 2016, a short-term limited-duration policy cost approximately $124 per month, compared to $393 per month for an unsubsidized ACA-compliant plan, end quote. In other words, the short-term limited-duration plans sell for less than a third of the cost of an Obamacare-compliant plan. That price differential would make such plans a much more attractive option, so much so that the Department of Health and Human Services projects that as many as 200,000 people could shift from an Obamacare exchange plan to a new short-term limited duration plan. I think that's a vast understatement. I wouldn't be surprised to see millions of people leave the Obamacare exchanges if they could buy short-term limited duration policies for a year at a time. Given repeal of Obamacare's individual mandate, accomplished via December's tax reform, enactment of this new rule could result in a significant expansion of options for consumers struggling to pay ever-increasing premiums. There's one more proposed rule that HHS should offer, that is, make these policies automatically renewable so you wouldn't have to apply for a new one every year. Now to the Second Amendment. In the wake of the Valentine's Day school shooting in Parkland, Florida, the left has stepped up its calls for new gun controls. The NRA is pushing back hard. And President Trump seems to be in the middle. He's leaning toward the NRA on some issues, notably the idea of training and arming some teachers and other school officials so that schools would have a built-in security system in place and not have to, to rely on the arrival 8 to 12 minutes after a shooting begins of law enforcement authorities who may or may not choose to challenge the shooter, as we've now learned about the behavior of law enforcement authorities in Parkland. But he's also leaning away from the issue from the NRA on other issues, like the idea of raising the federal age restriction from 18 to 21. So you'd have to be 21 to purchase a firearm under federal law. As for action in Congress, one idea that seems to be at the centerpiece of proposed legislative remedies is Senator Cornyn's bill, the so-called fix nix bill. This bill was introduced after the Sutherland Springs shooting, where the shooter, who had been court-martialed by the Air Force over his bad behavior and under existing law should not have been allowed to purchase a firearm, never had his information submitted properly to the NICS. The bill passed the House in December, paired with a bill calling for concealed carry reciprocity. But because it's, part, it's paired with that concealed carry reciprocity bill, it's stuck in the Senate. 19 moderate House Republicans sent a letter to Speaker Ryan on Friday asking him for a standalone vote on the fix nix bill. The fix nix bill purports to fill holes in the National Instant Criminal Background Check System by offering $500 million in incentives to federal and state authorities to make sure they're properly submitting mental and criminal history records to the FBI's system. But there are some problems with this. To begin, the bill essentially offers incentives for federal and state law enforcement authorities to do things they're already supposed to be doing. Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana has a different suggestion. Why don't we just fire them if they're not doing what they're already supposed to be doing in this area, rather than spend another $500 million we'd have to borrow? 
Further, as Gun Owners of America points out, the new system could sweep up people who haven't committed any kind of felony. Say you're on vacation and you got a speeding ticket. You forgot about it. Before long, a court in the jurisdiction where you got the ticket issues a bench warrant. And the cop who encounters you later and checks your information with the National Crime Information Center finds out about the warrant and informs you that you're now considered a fugitive from justice. Massachusetts, for instance, sent to the NICS the names of 430,000 people subject to bench warrants who are now considered fugitives from justice. Someone who got a speeding ticket on vacation and forgot about it isn't necessarily the kind of hardened criminal we need to fear and prohibit from purchasing firearms. Senators Kennedy, Mike Lee, and Rand Paul oppose the Fix Nix bill in its current iteration over concerns like these. Stay tuned. And that's our Washington Report for this week.